You know, I was driving through my neighborhood the other day, and uh, I don't know if your neighborhood is like this, but my neighborhood has signs in it. it it's not just street signs, but it's all kinds of signs. Uh, some people still think that an election is like right around the corner because the election signs haven't come down uh, from whenever that would have been uh, last year, you know, I mean, and, and we still have that going on. And uh, some people have signs declaring, you know, uh, uh, Christmas is here and they have an invitation to Christmas at their church. And some people have signs about what they believe or they don't believe stuck in their yard. But there was one sign that I saw in this house. I mean, they were done up. They were ready for Christmas. They had more inflatables than I had seen out there. And I love driving through. Don't you love driving through and seeing all the Christmas stuff that's happening, the lights and all that? But this sign was different because it said 15 sleeps until Christmas. And every day they're changing that sign, 15, 14, 13, 12, whatever you know, as it goes. And as I thought about that, I was like, that is a great sign right there. That got me excited about Christmas because so many things uh, in our lives actually don't build expectation, do they? they? They just don't do it. But when I think about that sign, 15 sleeps until Christmas when I saw it, I, I, I was just driving through it and I thought, that's so perfect because it's building expectation for us into something that's just around a corner. And when we think about building expectation, it's really incredible. It's not like being in school and having the expectation of a test next week. Do you, any of you remember what that felt like? Do you remember how, I mean, did you just wake up five more sleeps until I get to take my test? Nope, I never had, I have never had that feeling in all my life. I've had a lot of feeling about school, but none of it was very positive. You know what I mean? It was always a dreadful thing, but the expectation that comes with knowing that Christmas is around the corner is a beautiful thing. And today, the title of the message is Praise in the Waiting. To be able to praise God in the waiting is something that is of great importance for all of us because truthfully, all of us are waiting on some things. And it might be some things that are short-term waits for us. It may be that you have just a few weeks until the waiting uh, is done. And, and that's a great thing for us when we can, can look forward to anticipation with that. Maybe you're looking forward to closing out the year at your work because uh, at the end of the year, it's a busy time. And when you get that closeout done, it's good. Some of us uh, have been celebrating some great things that have happened this year. I've, I've had some friends that have been able to say like, I've only got three more treatments left for cancer and I'm gonna be, be done with that. And you just praise the Lord for that. It's a great thing when somebody's able to do that. And when we say that we're, we're waiting for God to do some great things, we're also waiting for his second coming and we're looking forward to that and we find ourselves in the waiting praising God. And today I want us to look at the life of Simeon. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter two. There are not many verses in the scripture that record much about Simeon. He's a little bit of an obscure fellow for us to look at this morning, but there's something about his life when we think about what it means to be praising God in the waiting that we begin to see that are very important. And I think that it becomes something for us to consider in the Christmas season that becomes really crucial for us because the truth of it is you're always waiting for God to do something. All of us. You're always waiting for God to do something. If you're not waiting for God to do something, you don't have an active prayer journal. 
Because all of us are always waiting on God to do something. And sometimes those things are with great anticipation. Sometimes those things are with great wonder because we don't know what God's going to do. We don't know what the outcome is going to be. And we have a thought about how it should be, but we're not really sure what God might be up to. And as we look at these verses, I think that Simeon's life teaches us how to praise God in the waiting. Let's read verses 21 through 35 this morning. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple when his parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law. Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace. As you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what Simeon had said about him. Then Simeon blessed him and told uh, his mother Mary, indeed, the child is destined to be the cause of the fall and the rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed and a sword that will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts uh, may be revealed. The story begins with the background here of Mary and Joseph doing what was right. They were doing what they were supposed to do. They were taking Jesus to the temple as was the custom according to the law. Now the law dictated some very specific things that needed to be done. There was his circumcision that was supposed to take place and it had a specific date that it was supposed to take place. And then you understand they were going to come and they were going to do several things on this date uh, as they arrived. It said that they were going to redeem him. And that sounds like a funny thing for us to say, but that actually goes back uh, to the Old Testament. The firstborn of all Israel were always to be redeemed. They were holy unto the Lord. Now, what we learn about Mary and Joseph is that they were not people that were exactly well off because they brought what was the lesser of the redemption sacrifice that morning uh, or that afternoon, we don't know, to the temple. They, they were supposed to bring a lamb to be redeemed or if you didn't have means, you could bring uh, the birds, the pair of turtle doves or the two young pigeons because the, that was for folks of lesser means. They were also coming uh, at the end of Mary's purification. After the birth of your first son or a son, I should say, there were 40 days that a lady was supposed to wait in a time period of purification before she presented herself at the temple and went through a purification 
process. I find this interesting, that 40 days. 40 days has many different uh, times it shows up in the scripture. And it's often that we don't think about this. Do you remember that there were 40 days that Elijah carried on in the strength of a, a special meal that was given to him? There were 40 days where Jesus fasted. There were 40 days where the earth was purified by rain and flood. Those kinds of things. That 40 days being very important. And you notice right here, of course, that Jesus' parents were not above the law of God. Isn't that interesting? That no one is. Not even the mother and father of Christ. They're going through and they're doing everything that is supposed to be done as it's supposed to be done. And they don't get any special treatment just because they're caring for, or they've been entrusted with the Son of God. That should be interesting for us to note this morning. If that we're serving the Lord this morning, even the little things matter. They matter for us immensely. If they mattered for Mary and Joseph, they certainly matter for us. But as they do that, they come across this man named Simeon, who had been told by the Lord that he would not see death until he had seen the salvation, the consolation of Israel that would be Christ the Lord. And there are four qualities about Simeon's life that I think are massively important for us to understand and to apply into our own lives. As we often look at character studies in the scripture, we find things from characters in the scripture, certainly that we need to avoid. We think about those things sometimes, we go, I don't need to do that. But there are often things in the scripture in the character of someone's life that we look at and we say, that needs to be part of my life. And in Simeon's life, we find four things. And I want you to notice them with me. When you read verse 25, it says that there was this man named Simeon and it describes him as being righteous, devout, looking forward to Israel and being led by the Spirit. So he was righteous, devout, looking forward and Spirit-filled. So let's start with this idea of being righteous, uh, this word is, a, is a, a picture that we actually grab from construction. If you've ever seen a carpenter's level, you know that it does the, uh, uh, the ability for you to see if something is canted one way or the other. And, and it's really taken the place for us of something that would have been used many years ago, actually called a plumb bob. If you've ever seen a plumb bob, uh, it, it's something that it, it kind of looks almost like a children's top that you would spin. Uh, it, it, it kind of comes down to a point. Oftentimes, the ones that I've seen are metal. Uh, uh, they're heavy. And what you would do is on one end of the plumb bob, you would tie a string and you raise it up high. And when you hang it, that point hangs perfectly righteous, perfectly square down to the ground so that you can see it, so that you could hang it next to a wall that you might be building and see if that wall is canted one way or the other. For us to be righteous means that we are, are perfect before the Lord. And you know that we can't be perfect before the Lord. Uh, we can only be perfect by the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that's given to us. But for us to be righteous means that we are living in a way that conforms to God's expectations and that we're living right before the Lord. And that's how it describes 
Simeon. Now, often we don't see the connection to righteous living and praise in the waiting, but I want to make that connection for you because every time that we see praise break forth, particularly in the Old Testament, there's always an element of righteousness to it. One of the, the, the great stories in the Old Testament comes from the prophet Isaiah, and you remember that the angel of the Lord comes in and begins to, uh, to, to show the glory of God to him, and the Lord says to him, who will go and, and, and who will, will go for us? And Isaiah says, I, I'm here, send me. You remember that, but we often forget that as he's praising the Lord, he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, as he hears the angelic host sing what we have turned into the song, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. When we think about that, we often don't see the connection between righteous living and praise. But I'll tell you, there's, there's a great connection there. For those of us in the church, as we wait for the Lord's return, as we praise him, there's a, there's a connection that cannot be separated between the righteousness of our lives and the praise that springs forth from our lives. Because for us to be in righteous living before the Lord means that we are living to the expectations that God has for us as believers and that we're living in a right way before him. And when that takes place, what happens is our relationship to the Lord is brought close. And when you're close with someone, it's easy to praise them. You think about that for a second. It's the same in your earthly relationships. When you have a good relationship with a child, it's easy to praise them for the good things that they're doing. When they're living and meeting the expectations that you've set forth for them as a family and, and they're living right before you and you see them doing the good thing, it's very easy to praise them for the things that they're doing. It's very difficult, isn't it, for that child to be in good relationship with you if they know that they're hiding things? Many of you probably have experienced this in your own lives as parents or maybe as children yourself, knowing what it's like to be sneaking around with your parents, you know, knowing that you're hiding something from them. And all that does is it kind of just drives you away from them. You, you don't want to be near to them because you're afraid you'll be found out. You'll be uh, assumed to be a fraud and we don't want that. But what happens with the Lord is when we're living in, in righteousness before him, it allows us to come in this building and praise him. It allows us to come in and lift our songs before him with, with great heart and fervor that comes forth from us. And as we do that, it's because we have a right relationship with him. And these things are inextricably linked. You cannot separate them. And I'm afraid that oftentimes that's what we try to do. We want to manufacture a feeling when we come in the building, but it doesn't work. It can't happen that way. Righteousness before the Lord is crucial to our praise in the waiting. Next it says about Simeon that he was a devout man. Righteous and devout. That word literally means when someone is devout, it literally means that they hold something well or carefully. To hold the faith well or carefully. When you think about that, it means to consider your faith. The New Testament later tells us to let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling, doesn't it? 
It tells us to come before the Lord in a way that is careful. And, and oftentimes, we, we don't think about this because we're so grateful that we've come to know the Lord and we feel secure in that. And, and I know you probably, like I am, love the song. I love when we sing the song, I'm a friend of God, he calls me friend. Don't you love that song? Aren't you glad that God has made us friends with him? And yet, as we're friends with the Lord, it's not something to be taken lightly, is it? It's not something to be taken for granted. He is still God, we are not, and, and we have been made friends with the Lord, and yet there must be a holy reverence and respect for the Lord. And, and there's something about the Lord that is, as we meet with him and we, we commune with him, that we understand who he is and we consider who he is carefully, and we're not flippant about it. I don't know that this has much to do with anything, but there was something about it when I was growing up uh, that uh, the older generation believed that we needed to dress our best when we came to the church. I don't know that my son has ever worn a tie. By the time I was in his, his age, my parents had dressed me in three-piece suits and little penny loafers and every other kind of thing because that's what we did. That's, that's what we did. And, and I don't think that what we wear is always indicative of holding our faith correctly, and that's a misnomer, isn't it? But there's something about that, and I think the sentiment behind that that was important, that we, we shouldn't associate with clothing, but we should associate it with attitude. To bring our best before the Lord. Because certainly you could wear a three-piece suit this morning and be a scoundrel. And that has nothing to do with anything, right? Or you could put on your Sunday best and come in and just be full of sin from all week long. That has nothing to do with anything. And yet, there was something to the formality of walking into the church building in attitude that I hope we don't lose. We relax the standard, and I'm obviously not wearing a, a coat and tie this morning, we relax the standard on dress, but we ought not relax the standard on our attitude towards the Lord. Because our attitude towards the Lord, to hold those things carefully. We remember throughout the scripture, all the encounters that people had with the living God, they were instructed to do things that were a little unusual. Do you remember when Moses met the, the living God on the mountain and the bush was burning there and he came to consider it and the Lord spoke from the bush and what did he say? Take off your shoes because where you are is on holy ground. That there's a separation. Because even those who followed the Lord understood who they were. Uh, get behind me. I, I'm a man of unclean lips. Lord, get away from us. You remember when Jesus calmed the, the sea and all the disciples were in awe of who he was. They certainly knew who he was. And, and they, they certainly had a relationship with who he was. But they knew him in a different light in that moment. Because they understood who he was and who they were. To handle our faith with care means that we keep watch over it, that we guard it, and that we're not flipping about it. I think it's a mistake for us this morning to say, I'm so glad that I'm saved, check, moving on. We handle our faith with care. That means that we tend to it. We watch after it. We don't assume and take for granted the things that God has done for us in our lives to be righteous and devout. This Simeon, we assume that he was maybe an older guy, don't we? Because he's talking about 
I'm waiting on the Lord and the Lord's going to let me see this before I see death. But for an older guy, he did something that was very, very interesting. He was always looking forward. Would you look back at that verse with me for just a second in verse 25? It said he was a righteous man, a devout man, looking forward to Israel's consolation. I don't know about you, but I love to look to the past. I really do. I spent my entire collegiate career looking to the past as a history major. I love things from the past. I think our past informs our future. I've told you that over and over and over again as we think about where God might be leading us as a church. You can't get to a stopping point and just say the past is gone and we're just moving forward. What we have to do is let the past inform where we're going to look forward because it gives you little clues along the way. And this is interesting for an older guy to be said about him that he was constantly looking forward. It's very easy for us to look back. His gaze wasn't on the past because he was actually looking for the consolation of Israel. And, and that word uh, consolation uh, just means the encouragement, the comfort of Israel. Why would he say that? You remember that we talked about last week that there had been this 400 year gap from Malachi in the Old Testament, the last book of the, the Old Testament, until we you hear a word from the Lord again in Matthew and we start to see the birth of Christ there. And you imagine how difficult that was and how lonely that must have been as a believer just waiting for the word of the Lord to appear. And as they're doing that, he's looking for that thing that is going to come and bring them encouragement because they've had no encouragement. They've had no prophetic word from the Lord. And so they're looking for that and he was looking for that and he was looking forward to that. Now, the only way that he could look forward is if his past informed his future. Because if you don't know to look for something forward, you have nothing to look forward to. You have no hope for the future. But, but we know that. I, I love this hymn. I quoted it a few weeks back where it said that we live with strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Very important for us because certainly what God has done in the past in our lives informs where we're going forward. But I want to read something that's just a reminder for us from Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 10. It says, don't say, why were the former days better than these, since it is not wise of you to ask this. We can sit around, and it's easy for us to do that, to sit around and always think that the past was the best. Everything in the past was better. Some things were better, but not everything was better. How many of you enjoyed gardening growing up? Right? Thank you. One of you. Right? Uh, my grandmother had a garden that was huge. I spent many a summer day doing those little shelling those peas and thinking, this is great. Could we just go to the store and buy some and get on with whatever we're going to do today? You know what I mean? Like, uh, it's true. There's nothing like fresh food right out of the garden, right? I mean, it's wonderful. But I don't hear a lot of you complaining that you're going to go home and order something from Amazon because you've been delinquent in buying your Christmas stuff and you're happy it's going to be here in two hours this afternoon, you know? Some things are good. But it's a mistake for us to always look at the past and here's what it is, pine for it. Because if we're wishing that we were living in a day that's gone by, 
What happens is we're missing all that God has for us in the here and now and what God is about to do. God is not only the God of the past, but he's God of the present and the future. And so as we serve the Lord, to be looking forward is to make sure that we're not missing out on what God has for us, to make sure that we're looking forward in anticipation for what God is doing. He understood the past. He understood the prophecies that a Messiah would come. He understood that that was a necessary thing, that he needed that, because all of Israel was looking forward to that, that consolation. They were sick with sin and knew that Messiah would come and make all things new, and they were looking for that. That came from the past. But the remedy for his present day and for the future hope of Israel was not in the past. It was coming in the future and he was looking forward to it. In fact, if you think about it, in his life we might say this was actually the old meeting the new. Maybe there's no greater picture of that in the scripture than this because you have this man Simeon who is well-versed, certainly in the Old Testament scriptures. He understands the covenants of God. He understands the promises of God. He's understanding the prophecies of God. In fact, he's living in one of those prophecies because it said that God had spoken to him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't see death before the Lord's Messiah had come. So he's living in the promise of that. And that, that's an older promise, right? He, he's living in those things. And yet, in just a minute, we're going to see that he walks into the temple that day. And this old guy, living with all of the promises for the past, takes the baby, the new covenant, in his arms. And in that moment, old meets new. And it's this perfect picture of what God was doing the old was meeting the new. One of the great commentators of years gone by was Alexander McLaren. He wrote extensively about this and how the old embracing the new must always be the norm for the church of Jesus Christ. The old embracing the new should always be the norm for the church of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that, that he points out that I think is, is so great, and it's a good reminder for all of us, uh, is that a lot of times we're, we're scared of the new, and we don't like the new. Now, I'm not talking about something that's new that departs from Scripture, right? We, we understand that. But what he was talking about, particularly in the church, is that there's always a generation that's coming up. And I love that the psalmist says, one generation will declare your great glories to another. And we talk about that, that our generation should be going back and forth in a multi-generational church, learning from each other, by the way, because God is doing something in a new generation all the time. And it would be good for those of us who are a little bit older, and I count myself in this now, to say that we're a little bit older, to say to the new generation that we understand what it was like to be revolutionary at one point. You know, y'all were called that one time too. Do you remember that? Your parents used to look at you and wonder how the world was going to make it. They worried that they were going to leave you the world. And, and they, they sat around and drank coffee at their table just like you do going, I just don't understand this new generation. I don't know if the church is going to make it. Our national, our politics aren't going to make it. They, they had the same things you did. 
But at the church of Jesus Christ, when we're looking forward, we know that God is doing something with the generation that's coming behind us in believers. And I think that's why Paul tells Timothy, don't let people despise you for your youth. There's youthful exuberance that the church needs. We need it, don't we? We need them to challenge us. We need these teenagers that are up here. By the way, they're going to be the interpreters of the culture for you because they're living in it. And as they live in it as godly men and women, they will help interpret the culture for you and help you understand it. And they'll translate it for, for God's good and glory so that we can know how to reach people that are coming in that generation. That They'll be great at it. They're not worried about all the things that you and I are worried about because they're living in it. Those cultural shifts that happen, they're going to keep happening. And one day they'll be sitting in my shoes. I was trying to explain that to my children the other day, that one day they'll be just as old as me. They'll have just the same hangups that I have. They'll have just the same. You know why that happens? I grew up in a family uh, where my grandfather used to always say, son. And I used to think, why does he do that? I swear I do it every week. I look at my own son, son, you know, and everybody makes fun of me in my house for it, you know, and I, I cannot help myself, you know, from doing it. They're going to be the same. But the old embracing the new for the church is important. The message doesn't change. The principles doesn't change. The commands don't change. But the old embracing the new is important for us so that we can carry it forward. No one once believed in us that we would be revolutionary enough to be faithful to the scripture. And yet here we are. No one once believed that we would be able to make the church of Jesus Christ effective. And yet here we are because by God's grace and God's help, we are doing it. And the old embracing the new is something that must happen. I want to challenge you this year because I believe this with all my heart. I think a lot of us are so discontented and praise doesn't flow off our lips because we're always looking for something that happened 20 years ago. And it will never be that way. Pastor Kirk and Pastors Tim, they're traveling this week with their wives. They're singing. They're a group. You know, they call themselves Evidence. They've been singing for years and they had an opportunity to go do this. And so we were kind of kidding around with one of the band members and he said, Pastor, are you gonna play guitar for us uh, this week? And I said, I mean, if we really need the praise hymns and songs from like 1992, I'm your guy. <laughs> but we don't. <laughs> That's not what we need. And if we're always looking to the past of how it was. Now, listen, I love my past. Not all of it, but I love my past. I was raised by good parents. I had godly grandparents. I'm so grateful for them. They did their best to raise my parents and, and their grandchildren and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And I look back on those memories that I have with them and they are so fond to this day. We have to be looking forward. God's work isn't finished in Nashville. God's not done. God has promised to be with us. God says to us that he'll be with us as we go into all the world and preach the gospel. And some of us have forgotten that. And all we say is, well, I tell you, in 1980, the church was awesome. In 1990, the church was awesome. In 2000s, the church, but I just don't see anything. We're losing the sight of that God's not finished. 
We need to be looking forward with great anticipation to what God is doing. And that's hard for us sometimes, particularly if we're sitting with heartache or particularly if we're sitting waiting on God to do something that we've been praying about and we don't understand or, or we're waiting on God to show up and, and we're anxious for him to show up and make some situation in our life be different. But we can look forward with anticipation that the God of yesterday is the God today and the God who will be the same tomorrow. We have so much to look forward to. Righteous, devout, looking forward. But he was also spirit-filled. For you and I to be spirit-filled is a game-changer. In fact, I don't know that there's anything in the universal church today, and when I say that, I mean the big church of Jesus Christ, not just our church, the big church, that's more lacking. And it's lacking for a, a number of reasons. As Baptists, we like to pretend the Holy Spirit doesn't exist. But the Holy Spirit is living in you. And, and we can thank God for that because we have the comforter inside of us now. In, in fact, that, that word that it used in the scripture here when it said that Simeon was looking for the consolation. Have you ever heard this word? Sometimes it's thrown around that they talk about the Holy Spirit being our paraclete. Have you ever heard that word? That's a funny word because it's, it's just a, a transliteration for us uh, of a Greek word that, that Jesus said, that's what's coming for you, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, that Greek word, and it just means the comforter that's coming to you. Jesus promised us that. And to be spirit-filled means that we're living spirit-filled lives. And that means that we're not living with unrighteousness in our lives that's unconfessed to the Lord. It means we're not living in a, a character, uh, with character, uh, what I would say is flaws that are, that are consistent in our lives, that are not consistent with the Lord. To be spirit-filled means that we're yielding to the Spirit. It's a moment-by-moment -moment thing. It started this moment with, uh, this morning when you woke up and determined whether or not you were going to yield to the Spirit in the smallest of things. Because it's often in the smallest of things where we must yield our will to the Spirit so that we can be filled with Him. And if we're living Spirit-filled lives, then that means that we're not living with regret or living looking back. Spirit-filled lives are living with anticipation. Spirit-filled lives are living righteously. Spirit-filled lives are living devoutly before the Lord, being controlled in the Spirit. And, and it means that we're controlled in the Spirit and how we deal with one another. It means we're controlled in the Spirit with, with, with how we, we come into this place. When he talked about being controlled with the Spirit, you notice what it said about him. It said it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He wouldn't see death. And then it said he was guided that day to the temple. He was so living in the spirit that the, the spirit was dictating his calendar. You ever tried that? Or do you just fill yours up? I, mean, I have things on my calendar for next week too. But I mean, do you really ask the Lord to guide your day? To just start there. Well, what happened is he gets to the temple. Can you imagine what that day must have been like for him? He's been looking forward, looking forward, looking forward. And the Spirit gives him that little nudge, today's the day, go. I imagine he was sitting in the temple and he was watching everybody walk through. Who is it? Is it, is it them? No. Who, who is it? Who? It's them. And he walks over. Can you imagine if you walked into church 
And some guy just grabbed your baby out of your arms and began to praise the Lord by saying, now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. When he says this, it's a beautiful thing. He says, you may dismiss your servant in peace. The idea there is a little bit lost on us when we say dismiss uh, your servant in peace because it's an accurate translation, but it, it also has the idea of being relieved from sentry duty. Do you know what the sentries do? Uh, it's that thing that you're standing guard, you're standing watch at night, or maybe you're, you're standing out in the sun all day at your post and you're watching for what might be coming down the road. And to be relieved means that you can go and rest, right? And listen to what he says. You can dismiss. Lord, I, I'm being relieved. My post is now given away. And, and I love this because he's at perfect peace surrounding death. Did you notice that? It's almost like this thing like, I'm done. Thank you. I've seen what I needed to see because you told me I would see it. I'm ready. You may relieve me of my duties. What a moment for him. Spirit-filled to see that baby and have it all come into focus for him. All those things that he had been waiting for, wondering who was walking in and would be the Messiah, wondering which family it would be. And as he sees this child, it comes out and he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation. What a funny thing to say. I've looked at a lot of babies in my life as a minister. but I've never said that about any of the babies that I've ever seen. That's a good-looking kid. That's a healthy kid. Oh, man, this kid looks fraught with danger because they're maybe in the NICU or whatever. We need to pray for this child. Hey, let's let's lift them up right now. I've said a lot of things around babies, but he saw something in the child Christ, Jesus the Lord, that made him understand salvation was now here. The old met the new in that moment. Your salvation is here. You prepared it in the presence of all peoples. And notice this. He says, it's a light for the Gentiles. Glory to your people, Israel. That prophetic note, it's a light for the Gentiles. Aren't you glad that God made us a part of what he was doing You may not recognize the significance of that statement, but if you're not a Jew this morning, you are a Gentile. And so obviously he knew that salvation was for his people, but when he says it's a light for the Gentiles, what he's saying is that there's something in Jesus' life that's going to illuminate the way for people to know who you are, Lord, and walk in your ways. Jesus will be a light for us. The Gentiles were in darkness. They didn't understand. In fact, all the way throughout the New Testament, what do we see the Gentiles are doing? Every time Paul encounters them, they're worshiping this God or they have uh, gods uh, surrounding them in this temple where they have one for every one of the gods and they even have one that they pray to, to the unknown God. And he's saying to them, as Paul says, this is the one, the Messiah, the, the Christ, the son of the living God. He is the light and life of men. I don't know what life was like for you yesterday as uh, you were picking up the stuff from the storm the night before. 
I woke up yesterday morning and I didn't have power, like many of you. We were without power for most of the day. Um, and uh, early in the morning, a text thread had started on our street. Hey, do you have power? No, I don't have power. Do you need anything? Yes, we got a tree down over here. Can we help over here? Can we do this over here? And we're doing all these things. And I mean, honestly, it wasn't a bad day to be sitting inside and outside and enjoying what God had for us. But I mean, you know how it is. The nighttime's approaching. And when you don't have power at your house and you have teenagers, it gets a little boring. You know what I mean? What are we going to do? Well, we're going to light a candle and watch it flicker. It's going to be exciting. <laughs> this is what they did in the old days. They counted flickering lights. And we're going to see how long it takes for you to go to sleep counting the flickers of the candle. And all of a sudden, power's back on, power's back on, text, power's back on. There was excitement. We were anticipating that it would come back on, weren't we? I mean, we, we knew it wouldn't be off forever. We knew that they were working diligently to do that. But we were anticipating that. And when I read this again this morning, I couldn't help but think of yesterday as I was thinking about how good it was to have the light, you know? Because do you do this? I mean, I found myself multiple times. I walked back into my closet. I knew the power was out and I turned on the light. No power, right? Man, I'd turn it back off. A few minutes later, you go in another room, flick on the light. Come on, you know the power's out. What is the matter with you, you know? But we do that because we need the light. We yearn for the light. We long for the light so bad. I mean, it's not like you could kind of grope around and find what you needed or, or use a flashlight or bring a candle in, but we yearn for the light. We need the light. Because when we're living in darkness, we don't even understand it. And Jesus is the light for us. And if I could just say this to you this morning, if you have never understood who Jesus Christ is, the best way that I could describe him for us, being God's son, he came to show us perfectly who God was. So he illuminated the character of God. Now you know what God desires. Now you know who God is because you've seen the character of God. He illuminated the mannerisms of God. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, well, how did God treat people? That's how Jesus treated people. You see that. You see the pathway to God because Jesus says there is no other way for us to understand who God is except through him. In fact, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You can't even get to God except through me. And so when we talk about this, what we're understanding is that if he's the light and life of, of men for us, what that means is that we only find out who God is through Jesus. You'll never find it through self-exploration. You won't. You won't find it through self-help books. You'll just get a little bit better at whatever you were trying to get better at. But to know who Jesus is, is to come face to face with the living God. Salvation. Salvation from what? The penalty of our sins. The scripture says that we are under God's wrath. Judgment. Because of sin in our lives. And that what Jesus did was came and lived a perfect life so that he might be salvation for us, dying in our place, taking our sins so that we might be saved. He is salvation. And you know, we've been studying this for a while, but I found it interesting that one of the commentators I looked at this week said, Simeon blessed Joseph he blessed Mary and talked about the blessing that it was going to be for everyone else, but he didn't bless Jesus. 
because Jesus was the source of all blessings for us. We've read that as we've gone through our study in the book of Ephesians, all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus. They come, they emanate from him. Every good thing in our life comes from him. And so this morning, I ask you, are you praising God in the waiting? You're waiting for something. I'm waiting for something. All of us ultimately are waiting for the Lord's return. And I pray that like Simeon, we would have faith to believe that what God said is true, is true. That Christ will return. And we look with anticipation for that. That won't happen if we're always looking back to 19 whenever, 2000 whenever. We have to look forward. Now, certainly those things that God has done in the past give us great hope that what God has said in the future will come true. I'm standing on the promises of God, the ones that he has been faithful in my life, in your life. To fulfill, we stand upon those promises. We lift up the Lord, but we praise him in the waiting. We praise him as we wait for his coming and, and answered prayer. And, and, and even in our heartbreaks, we, we praise him in the waiting this morning. And there's something beautiful about that for us. If we can look forward to his coming today and look forward to the joy that comes. And I love that, that our reading this morning said that it, it's better to be joyful while we wait for the thing to come than, than to only have joy once it arrives. We wait now with joy great joy because salvation is here and he is the light I'm going to ask you to pray with me this morning as we close our service Heavenly Father we are mindful this morning that for many of us we came in and we came into the building today discouraged maybe feeling anxious, possibly feeling defeated. And yet, Father, you have told us to praise you in the waiting. And so we do. Lord, I pray for us that we would be righteous and devout. Father, forgive us when we are flippant about our relationship with you. You are holy, holy, holy. You are Lord God Almighty. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. We thank you that salvation has come in Jesus. And we pray for your return and anticipate with great longing the day we will see our, fa our Savior face to face. Father, I pray for our church that we would be looking forward, embracing the past and the future at the same time. Father, hopeful about the generation of believers that are being raised up in this church who will one day, Lord, lead us. Father, help us to nurture them, to instruct them, to guide them, but to learn from them, to listen to them, to affirm them, Lord, in the faith. God, may we be spirit-filled people this morning. Holy Spirit, may you have your way in our hearts so that we may be joyful in this time of waiting. 
we wait, we trust. And as we wait, we choose joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.